0: Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of John, the book of John, we continue on in our study of the book of John, chapter 18 is where we are at. After having finished the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in John, chapter 17, we come now to the betrayal and the arrest of our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in John, chapter 18. Our scripture reading will come from verses 1 through 11. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. The Word of God reads such Verse 1 When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Quote, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one, unquote. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Our Father, we come before your holy word as we remember The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So we pray, O Father, that you would illumine our minds, that you would help us to understand and see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. There was a man named Don Richardson. If you haven't heard the story, Don Richardson spent a number of years with the Sawi tribe in Papua New Guinea. He had come from America as an anthropologist, missionary, hoping to bring the Christian message to a tribe that was nearly Stone Age in its perspective. But his message kept really colliding with the tribe's unusual beliefs. They were difficult to reach. Christian values such as love or forgiveness really had no appeal to the sawi because they held up deceit as the highest virtue. They saw no reason really to change their patterns by which they were living, their patterns of cruelty, their patterns of cannibalism. In fact, when the Richardsons told them of the story of Jesus, there was really only one one incident that really piqued the interest of the Sawi people, and that was the story of Judas' betrayal. To the Sawi, Judas was a genuine hero. He had shrewdly infiltrated that trusted inner circle that Jesus had of his disciples before turning on the Lord Jesus Christ. So they held him up as a hero. And every time Richardson tried to share Christ with the Sawi, uh, that attempt miscarried. And finally, After watching the 14th bloody battle that they had fought, the Sawi people, outside of his home, he had reached the end of his rope. How could he ever break through? How could he ever reach these people? How could he ever reach such violent people whose values were completely opposite of that which the scriptures taught? And he decided he was going to leave New Guinea, despite their pleas that he would stay. Just before Don Richardson's family left, the Sawi and their enemies, the Hainam tribe, they staged an elaborate ceremony in front of his home. It was their final effort to convince the missionary to stay. The entire village gathered in front of his home to watch the event, and everyone was silent, with the exception of one person. That one person was the Sawi chief's wife who screamed loudly as the chief took their six-month-old baby from her arms and held him high in the air. The chief carried his only son to the enemy chief and gave him to the enemies. And a member of the tribe explained to the Richardsons that the Hainam tribe would rename the baby and rear that baby as one of their own. Don Richardson knew that the Sawi could not fully be trusted since any action might be tainted with some elaborate, deceptive scheme. But that memorable day that is etched in his mind and written in the book called The Peace Child, he learned that there was that one great exception and that one great exception was called The Peace Child. The chief's giving of his son to his enemies, that profound act, that profound act would overcome all suspicion and by mutual agreement, the two tribes then would live in peace as long as that child lived and no war could be fought between these two tribes. No cannibalism between them. Something clicked in his mind. And that thing in his mind as he watched this event happen right in front of his place that was analogous to what God did. A parallel story into the Sawi culture that could convey the message of a forgiving God And he gathered the members of the Sawi tribe around him and with a beating heart, he shared with them how God had given his child in order that there might be peace, peace with God. And how Jesus came to live among enemies and to make peace with mankind. That's the message that is here. Message of Jesus who came to make peace despite the deception, despite the deception and the kiss of a traitor whose name was Judas. Jesus had come to earth, you see, to die. That was why he came. And he came with courage despite the fact that there was going to be an entire cohort that would come to arrest him, despite the fact that there was a traitor in his midst, he continued on his path to the cross because that is why he came to earth. And he came and he faced what was in store for him, the cup of wrath that he would drink that he says at the end of this particular passage. And he came, though, displaying his power, not in human self-reliance, as Peter would demonstrate later. So we come to this section of text in John chapter 18, having looked from John chapter 2 to chapter 12, which contains the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we looked at that one night from chapters 13 to 16, the comfort chapters in which Jesus encourages his disciples who were dismayed, who were distraught, disoriented, because Jesus was going to leave them. Then we saw chapter 17, in which Jesus prays the most magnificent prayer, perhaps in the Bible, that he prays for his disciples, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And here in chapter 18, he leaves and is in the Garden of Eden. And we look now at what happens in his last night, in his last night. He didn't come, you see, as some revolutionary. He didn't come in some sort of person who just got mixed up in the wrong things. He didn't come as a wonderful example for us to live an exemplary life as just some human being. He came with the purpose of giving his life as a peace child. And here in chapter 18, we look. We look to see the courage of Jesus in the face of his betrayal. Verse 1 When Jesus had spoken these things, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples, the Bible says. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Now Jesus, after these things, he had spoken in chapters 13 through 17, as we see, were the comfort chapters. He had encouraged them. They were celebrating the Last Supper The communion, or the time, I should say, of of the Passover meal. Then he had his high priestly prayer either on the way or at the end of that supper. And he went with his disciples, it says, the text, over the ravine of the Kidron, the Kidron Valley, due east of Jerusalem there, a couple hundred feet down, descending this valley wood. The path to there from where they were to the Garden of Gethsemane, it was roughly about three-quarters of a mile, and would take maybe a half an hour, although this particular night, it was likely crowded, might take them much longer. But that Kidron Valley is a wadi. Many times, if you go to Israel today, they'll tell you, "This is the wadi, such- and-such. A wadi is a dry, dry riverbed. That is dry except during the rainy season that would fill up. And this would have had some water that was going through it. Not only would it have water going through it, but on this particular night, it would have been flowing crimson red. Why? As I mentioned, that Kidron Valley was a couple hundred feet right down from the Temple Mount. And this was Passover season in which the priests would be days in taking the thousands of sheep to slaughter as sacrifices, estimated somewhere around perhaps a quarter million of them, so much so that the blood would run down the side of this body into the dry riverbed below, and the water that had started to come would continue to wash it away, bright crimson red as it would run down they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, the text says, where there was a garden. Gethsemane itself is an Aramaic word meaning olive press. It wasn't a garden full of flowers. It wasn't a garden that would have some sort of monuments. It was a garden which had olive trees. Likely, uh, there was a privately owned garden in which they pressed olives in order to get olive oil. You can actually go there today. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can see olive trees there today, some of which have been dated, actually, dated to be over 2,000 years old, perhaps as even silent witnesses to what happened that night. It was the Garden of Gethsemane, and here Judas, it says then, having received the Roman cohort And officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Remember Judas? Remember Judas? Judas was a man who was a man of great privilege. He's a great privilege of being within the 12. But because of what? His own sinful desires, his own sinful desires for money for power, for prestige, his concern for material things and his love for the world that hardened, hardened his heart and he sold out his opportunity for salvation and the Savior for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. He was the one who was the most vocal. When we looked at John chapter 12, remember when Mary had come? There they were, There they were in that upper room. Mary had come and she anointed the Lord Jesus with a very expensive bottle of perfume, which Judas was the one who spoke up in John 12, verse 4. The text in John 12, verse 4 says, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Sounds pretty pious, doesn't it? Verse 6 tells us, though, Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. This bottle of perfume that Mary had Brought to anoint the Lord Jesus were 300 denarii possibly. A denarii was the wage of a Roman soldier. One day's wage. 300 days of wages. And you count all of the weekends and the celebrations, the feasts that they had. This would have been roughly a year's salary. Imagine that. Giving an entire year's salary for the average person to the Lord Jesus, to anoint him. And who spoke up? Judas? Pretending, feigning to be concerned about the poor. You see, here he was. Judas was the one who was the treasure. And like the rest of the disciples we've seen, they had visions of who Jesus was, who he was supposed to be. In their mind's eye, they had pictured a Messiah who was going to overthrow Rome, who was going to establish a kingdom. They had seen him perform miracle after miracle of feeding feeding thousands of people, 5,000 men, including men, women and children, upwards of 15,000 or so. He had seen him heal people. He had seen them in his wisdom teach like no other teacher. And you can imagine in Judas's mind, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. This Jesus is going to be the next powerhouse. I'd like to be his treasure. And he would skim off the top of whatever came in, all of these people. But then Jesus began to talk. He began to talk and teach difficult things, and people began to leave. And Judas, I'm sure, was scratching his head, saying, What in the world are you doing? Then Jesus began to talk about how he would leave. How he was going to suffer. How they wouldn't be able to follow him. And Judas, I'm sure, began perhaps to have a heart. Thinking, I gave up three years of my life for this. I gave up three years of my life to follow somebody who is going to be what? Bankrupt? Bitter? Resentful? Angry? Was Judas, perhaps? Who was... Going to what? Cash out and bail out. The Bible tells us immediately after that time in the upper room when he had protested loudly, pretending to be concerned about the poor. Matthew twenty-six fourteen tells us then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas was a lover of money and a bread in his heart, treachery. A bread in his heart when someone gave to Jesus a lavish amount. What in the world are you doing? Why? Because he wanted more for himself. He wanted to keep more and didn't want others to give to the Lord. And so in verse 3. It tells us in John 18, having received the Roman cohort and the officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees, all these folks. A cohort was roughly 600 to 1,000 men. Now, it wasn't unusual for Rome to send a large contingent of soldiers to arrest a single person. In this particular case, it may have been a figure of speech. Maybe a couple hundred or whatever it might be. It might have been 600 to 1,000 Just as we might use a figure of speech, though, saying the Seattle Police Department went and arrested so-and-so, we wouldn't imagine to ourselves that every single man in the police department went to do so. But nonetheless, there were many, hundreds, among them, the officers, the chief priests, who would come. They came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, see, Passover would have been a full moon, well lit, the Garden of Eden. Perhaps they were carrying the lanterns and torches, which really they didn't quite need there in the Garden of Gethsemane if you've been there. Maybe they had thought that maybe Jesus might flee to the mountainside and they would need them, but Jesus was not surprised. He was not taken off guard. He wasn't going to run. No, Jesus knew Jesus knew what would happen, and he voluntarily faced the persecution that was to come. He knew well the place and the time of his arrest, and he knew his betrayal was right at hand, and he didn't try to bargain. He didn't try to negotiate. He didn't try to manipulate. He didn't go hide himself behind some olive tree. No. With courage he came. With courage he came, knowing that they were going to unjustly accuse him, unjustly try him, and they were going to unjustly execute him. And Jesus would surrender himself to the will of God. Surrender himself to the will of God, even though he knew very well. They were plotting. They were planning. This was the entire scenario, and it was part of the plan of God. On the one hand, there were wicked people who were conspiring his death, his execution. On the other hand, God, in his wisdom and his plan, was using them to execute his plan. Do you realize a similar story took place in the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter 37 all the way through 50 chronicles the life of a young man named Joseph. A young man named Joseph who had brothers He had 11 other brothers, 10 of them he went to visit. And he was a person who dreamed these dreams and perhaps spoke out of turn. But nonetheless, his brothers became jealous because he was a favored son of his father who had given him a colorful coat. And Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery from some folks that were going down south into Egypt Wrongfully, He was imprisoned in Egypt. But by the grace of God, he rose to power. And then there was a famine. There was a famine in the land. And his brothers came looking for food down in Egypt. And in Genesis, if you turn with me there. Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Chapter 50. There's a key passage. There's a key passage because his brothers come. His brothers come before their brother Joseph, not knowing that it was their younger brother whom years earlier they had sold away into slavery. They had lied to their father, saying he had been perhaps eaten by wild animals. They found his quote, 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 unquote, they said. They showed up with some blood. And there in chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph tells his brothers, after revealing himself to them, Joseph says in verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid because they were now that they realized who he was. He was a very powerful figure, second to Pharaoh in Egypt. It says in verse 19, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That's an illustration of what we call the doctrine of concurrence. The doctrine of concurrence that, as we see on one level, those who plan wicked things, God on another level is even using that to accomplish his purposes for our good and for his glory. Just like in this case, these folks had come to arrest the Lord Jesus. Judas, the Romans, the religious leaders had come to take Jesus away that he might be tried and executed. Even God was using that incident for his own glory. And it teaches us what? What? As we look in this first passage, it teaches us what? You know, I don't know if you've ever faced injustice, ever been betrayed, ever been backstabbed, ever wrongfully lost a job, or been fired for unjust reasons. If you've ever been slandered, ever been the object of ridicule, I don't know if you've ever been taken advantage of years ago, or even the object of being bullied whatever the case as a believer God gives us the encouragement in Romans 8:28 and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose God works behind the scenes and there's a silver lining to all that happens for the people of God because you know what there is a purpose by which God has orchestrated all things that happen. The Chronicle of Higher Education featured an article about a man named William Lane Craig who is called the Christian philosophy's boldest apostle, quote unquote. Craig had traveled the world and he debated some of the most articulate articulate atheists. You might have heard of the named Sam Harris, he is an atheist, and he said, Craig is one Christian apologist who seems to have put the fear of God into many of my fellow atheists, unquote. Which is probably why the author Richard Dawkins refuses to b- debate Craig. But the story of how Craig became a brilliant scholar and a brilliant philosopher, a debater, a uh, reveals the sovereign work of God, even in our weaknesses. It's because from birth, he suffered from Charcot-Marie-Tooth syndrome. It's a neuromuscular disease. It causes atrophy in the extremities. He walks with a slight limp. His hand often, his hands often look like they're they're gripping something that is invisible. Growing up, he couldn't run normally. He said, my boyhood was difficult. Children can be very cruel. Perhaps he was the victim of being bullied. Since varsity sports weren't an option for him, he joined his high school debate team. And initially, he really wasn't interested in spiritual issues. But he started reading the Bible And the Jesus he found there took hold of him. Craig explained in the article, quote, For me, it was a question of personal commitment. Was I prepared to become this man's follower, unquote? During college, he continued debating and searching for what God would have him to do. And not until years later, he established himself as a Christian philosopher. And he began to debate and defend the faith in public settings. He is a sought-after, sought-after speaker. You can find him even on YouTube videos if you wish. He said, I was just thrilled to be able to use debates as a means of fulfilling the vision of sharing the gospel. To us, we might look at a disability of someone and think to ourselves, boy, what a handicap. And yet from God's perspective, God's sovereign will, in all of that, was such that he would become someone who would impact the world for the sake of the gospel. God takes us as we are, and he can use us when we yield ourselves to him. And the question is, do we have the courage courage to face even the strongest anti-God opponents, such as those who are well-known atheists, knowing that what? It's not us. It's not about us. It's about God and what God can do through us. And in the face of injustice, God always provides a silver lining. In the face when you might feel cheated or taken advantage of or whatever, God has a plan. Jesus didn't hide. He didn't run. He didn't accuse his would-be arresters. He knew that God had a plan. and We can do the same. Knowing that God has a plan. But it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent on the power of God. So secondly, we see his spiritual power despite opposition. Verse 4. His spiritual power despite opposition. Jesus, knowing all things were coming upon him, went forth and said, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. He went out to meet his accusers or his those who came to arrest him whom do you seek and they 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 the english text tells us that they answered him and jesus said i am he now in the english text the word he is italicized in some of your bibles because it was added in there it is implied when you see a particular text in your bible that is italicized it is an added word to complete the idea of that particular sentence, but the word he isn't there. In other words, Jesus says, ego, a me, I am, I am. Does that sound familiar? Does this sound like what Exodus 3.14 tells us when God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me. What happened? Jesus is declaring his deity. And at the mere spoken name of Jesus, whoosh, all of them fell over. It says they fell over. Jesus, all he had to do was speak his name. And in the power of God, hundreds fell. Who was in control? Jesus was always in control. God was always in control. He wasn't a victim of some unfortunate circumstance. He was not hiding. He came and he wasn't playing games and negotiating and say something like, why? Who who are you asking? No. With courage he comes and with divine power, the power of God is displayed. Who's still standing? Jesus, the disciples. He wanted them to see. He wanted their confidence to grow that he would willingly give up his life. He would willingly be arrested. He would willingly sacrifice himself. He wasn't powerless at all. When you read some liberals, they'll say, oh, Jesus surprised them. And they were standing so close together, the first guy was shocked, he fell over. And like dominoes, they all fell over. I don't think so. Believe the case here. The overwhelming power of Jesus at his very name. Now, he does something interesting. He says in verse 7, he asks again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. And that's why does he do that? Why does he ask them a second time? It's not because he didn't hear them the first time. No, why does he do that? I believe it's so that they can reiterate they can reiterate who they are there for and imply who they're not there for. In other words, Jesus' next statement is very telling. So it says in the text, if you seek me, let these, his disciples, go their way. In other words, don't get them involved. You told me twice you're here for me. Let them go. Notice too, in spite of his impending arrest, you know, Jesus is thinking about his disciples, his selfless sacrifice, just like in his high priestly prayer is for their security. Jesus was in the upper room and his entire time, the vast majority of it in 13 through 16, the chapters there, was to comfort and encourage them, his care and his concern for his own people. His own sheep. Now, some people, they'll take this particular section of text, and they'll misinterpret it. Let these go their way in verse 9 to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost no one. They'll say, well, look, 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 Jesus had to protect them. Otherwise, they would lose their salvation. You see, he had to stop them. Physically, spiritually, so they wouldn't lose their salvation. So there, there, take that. You can lose your salvation. And they stop there. You see, that's what some say. Do you know what the answer to that is? The answer is, well, they're partly right. If Jesus didn't intervene, they would have lost it all. If Jesus didn't intervene, they would have been so jarred, they would have just lost it. Quit salvation. And frankly, you and I would have too. But, you see, the answer is Jesus always intervenes. Jesus always keeps our salvation safe. Jesus always keeps us from being lost, just as it is here. It's Jesus who keeps us in the palm of his hand. It's Jesus who loses no one. It's Jesus who keeps our salvation secure. Amen. And Jesus does that. And in John chapter 17, in the previous chapter, in chapter 17, verse 12, he prays for his disciples. And it says there, if you look right back, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Who is it that keeps us in his name is Jesus, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished. If Jesus didn't guard you, what would happen? It would but Jesus always guards his own sheep. Jesus always guards his own sheep like the great shepherd he is, like the faithful shepherd he is. You know, that is what he does. He cares for you. He cares for me. And once we are part of the family of God, Jesus will protect us and secure our salvation in heaven. And it's his authority to give up his life by the power of God, his protection, his power, his continuing ministry, characteristic of a true shepherd. There will always be people who oppose you and who oppose me simply because we are Christians, simply because we follow Christ. You will always have those who will come. There will be temptations. There will be struggles To all who are Christians. And when those temptations and struggles come though, our confidence isn't in us. Our confidence is in the spiritual power that God provides for us to overcome. There is Jesus who is the true shepherd who will protect us, who will care for us, who will pray for us. And when temptation comes, 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you as such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Everyone you see has problems and difficulties Maybe you're facing bankruptcy. Maybe you've just lost your job. Maybe your marriage is falling apart or whatever it is. Or maybe your personal life is in chaos. Or maybe you're struggling in school or in some personal way. The answer for you is in the power of God. The power of Christ. There's a supernatural power to overcome because of Christ. Not that he'll take away all of your problems and say, well, you come to me and you'll have a life full like a bowl of cherries No, but he's going to help you. Navigate through those that you might live for the glory of God, that you might live a life because of the power of Christ within you. And we sing songs that are related to the power of Christ in us, it is not us; it is God who works in and through us. The power of Christ is displayed even here in this text. In contrast to Peter in verse ten and eleven, Peter's foolish self-reliance, in the face of his enemies. Simon Peter then, having drawn a sword, which is a makarios. this is a sword, a double-edged sword, short used by Roman soldiers as well. He drew it and he struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Now, Peter was courageous, but he was also impulsive, certainly misplaced. I'm sure after seeing Jesus say, I am, hundreds of soldiers fall over, I'm sure he was emboldened. He just went headlong. And said, well, don't worry. I've got Jesus behind me and began swiping away. I'm sure that he wasn't probably very good at managing a sword either, because you can imagine, I don't think he aimed for an ear. I think he aimed for something else, and either Malchus ducked or he missed one of the two, but he cut off his ear. And in Luke twenty-two fifty-one, the Bible tells us what Jesus said. He says, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear, and he healed him. You know, the kingdom of God is in advance by violence. The kingdom of God isn't advanced by force. The kingdom of God doesn't use weapons of war, as we saw last week when we looked at Ephesians 6. Our weapons, our weapons are the word of God and holy, righteous living, the armor of God that protects us. He heals. He takes care. And he gave Malchus a new ear. In his compassion, In his compassion, he did that and tells Peter, stop. He's got a cup, a cup of wrath that he is going to drink, a metaphor that is used here. He's going to drink and he's going to the cross. You see, there's no, there is no, there is no need to accomplish God's will by some sort of self-reliance, by trying to accomplish God's will by manipulation or by political infighting or, or violence. No need to met out God's justice because God's justice is his that he will do. God doesn't need our selfish deception or lying to accomplish what he has promised to accomplish. Rick Garman writes in, his, in today's Christian entitled, an article, My Secret Hate. He had a daughter. His daughter's name was Katie. Katie. And in 2002, she was date-raped when she was 18 and a freshman in college. Too humiliated to talk about what happened even to her own family, she switched schools. She attempted to move on with her life. And over the next 14 months, Katie withdrew from her family. She withdrew from her friends. She developed an eating disorder, began to lose weight. Finally, she, confronted, she was confronted by her mother and Katie confessed what had happened, the truth. year of prayer and counseling finally helped her to overcome that pain and regain a normal life. But Katie's father struggled. He had a struggle. His desire was to avenge his daughter's rape. He didn't even develop he even developed a plan, and his plan was to kill the man who had so deeply wounded his daughter. He pulled away from everyone, and he plotted how he would drive to the college campus, sit in the parking lot with his rifle until the rapist walked by and then shoot him. One weekend, when Katie was home, he retreated from her pain by what he would do is go downstairs in the basement and he'd clean his gun. His son, Thomas, came down and said, What you doing, Dad? Can I help you clean? You going hunting? The father didn't respond. He looked at Thomas. The boy's eyes brimmed with tears. Quote, He knows, dear God, I think my son knows my plan. The father thought, Come here, boy. Give your daddy a hug, Rick. Rick. Garmin said. And when Thomas wrapped his arms around him, the father realized that the boy's love had somehow been stronger than his own hatred. His hug began to crumble my rage, he said, like a sledgehammer breaking a wall, chip by chip. Locking the gun in the cabinet, he made a choice to forgive the man who had harmed his daughter. You know, many times we may feel that injustice is common. We decide, like Peter, that we're going to take things into our own hands, do things our way, fix things, find justice or whatever it may be, rather than forgiveness. That's not Jesus' way. The betrayal and the arrest of Jesus was all a part of God's sovereign plan. How do we face betrayal? How do we face opposition? How do we face injustice? by remembering that God has a silver lining in his concurrent plan, that though there may be those who plan wickedness and evil, there is God who is planning somehow good to grow roses among the thorns. How do we respond? By relying on the spiritual power God has given to us to have the right attitude, to have the right perspective, to be a person who takes things into our own hands? No. No but to be a person who relies upon God, just as Christ didn't run and hide, but he faced with courage and he trusted in God's plan, the power that God had given him and responded in love, not violence. Let's bow in prayer. God in heaven, we give you thanks. Oh, Father, for your great love and the model that we have, before us, the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, O God, that we might be people, we might be people who would respond to injustice, betrayal in the same way, to trust in you, to trust in your power, which works in and through us, who secures our salvation. O God, may you, O Father, conform us to the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.